a great CEO has the ability to do two things simultaneously. Number one is to precept gifts in others. So precept is the seeing of a gift before someone can see it in themselves. So it's a little play on perception. And second, they have the ability to evoke those gifts from the person. That comes from the Latin ex vocat, to call from within. So I'm going to see a gift in you. That's not where the job ends. I'm going to call it forth so that you see it in yourself. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our guest today is Trey Taylor, an expert at strategic planning for C-suite leaders and the author of his new best-selling book entitled, A CEO Only Does Three Things. Trey has over 20 years of experience with practical knowledge, training, and consulting with some of the world's largest companies. He also has experience working in numerous industries such as insurance, finance, and technology. Hundreds of CEOs have used Trey's methods to create fulfilling, efficient, and professional work lives. I'm very excited to have Trey join me today. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Trey, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Dr. White, so good to see you and be with you. Excited to share some stuff with you today. Yeah. So we're talking, you're in Atlanta and I'm here in Tampa and we're talking after going through about a year of the pandemic. So it's been a really crazy year, but during that time you were pretty busy and you have a new book out for CEOs. And I think that book has three pillars. So I'm excited to kind of get to that here in just a few minutes, but I'd like to hear a little bit more and maybe bring our listeners up to speed about where you gained your experience, you know, what's your background and what what kind of brought you to this point that you felt you were ready to to write this book for CEOs. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to share that. And I'm also pleased that pandemic seems to be lifting a little bit around the country. That's really good. I, I speak to people all over the country all the time, of course, as, as most of us do with Zoom now. And it is amazing to me the very different pandemic experiences we are having based on where we live and what our ages and health health situations are. And so, you know, just much love to everybody having to go through this. I've been super impressed that so many people have said, I know that I've got a different life right now and I'm going to make the most of what this looks like. And so that was one of the things that I decided last year when I really took out the pencil, sharpened the pencil and said, okay, what am I going to do with this time? It's obviously going to be downtime this year. And if for me, it was between go get my pilot's license or finish the book. And so I really wanted the pilot's <laughs> license, but I, but I did the book because I did the responsible thing first. And so that's what we did. I started my career. I went to Emory University in Atlanta, took an economics and political history degree, and just was totally surprised when no one showed up with a job offer at graduation. You know, liberal arts students do have that uh, trouble sometimes. So (laughs) as all liberal arts students uh, seem to do, I went to law school instead. And then the job offers came. And the job that I took was with a company called Endeavor Technologies that eventually became WebMD. It was a really small company at that point. And I was sort of the 12th man on the deal team, you know, the intern, the legal clerk and that sort of thing. And, And just doing everything we could do to do deals and put the company together and 
form partnerships. So we made strategic partnerships with companies like Microsoft, and we merged with a large company called Healthion. And I was doing that work, and there was no template for that kind of stuff at that point, because this was internet 1.0. So we were we would do a deal on Thursday, and then Friday morning, it'd be front page of the Wall Street Journal, you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. it was really fun. We founded a billion-dollar WebMD Ventures, a billion dollars into WebMD Foundation, and we did the largest private placement of equity in U.S. financial history. And I think that's probably still the case. I do need to check in on that to see if I'm still a record holder. But we were doing all of that with a three or four person deal team. So it was like graduate school coming out of graduate school. And so that was really fun. I went from there into consulting with some smaller companies and then ended up in the venture capital space until 9-11, which completely wiped out Atlanta venture capital. You just couldn't raise a fund or do an investment. Everybody was sort of hunkered down. And then I ended up at Earthlink, which is an ISP. And then Earthlink led me to AOL, where I was ready to start my job, but a family tragedy intervened. And so then I found myself an overnight CEO of the family business, which was not something that I had expected. Mm. Mm, yeah, sometimes life intervenes like that. And, you know, it's interesting because my mom was an entrepreneur and she sort of visualized that I'd be taking over her business, but it was, wasn't necessarily in my plan. Could you tell us a little bit about your family business? And Yeah, and I think you'll see a parallel there. So my dad specifically said, I don't want you going into this business. Like I want you to go, you know, very common. My grandfather founded the business, my dad worked in it, and the third generation problem came up. Right. right. So third generations either go sort of one level up in education or they waste the family business to nothing. Right. And it's a heavy burden to sit on somebody's shoulders for sure. And so we had decided that I wasn't going to waste the family business <laughs> and I was going to go to law school. And that's how I ended up in law school. And my dad ran a, a really great business in the employee benefits, financial planning, insurance space. We still own that company 54 years later. Only 9% of businesses make it into the third generation. We're really proud of that. And so we run a really great, relatively boutique-sized practice in that space. And the story unfolded that I was on the way to take the job at AOL. They wanted me so bad that the president had called and said, why aren't you here yet? And I said, I haven't sold my house. And he said, we'll buy it. So he bought the house sight unseen, they resold it later, and they sent the moving trucks the day afterwards. And so I was on the phone with the moving company when my mom buzzed through and she said, hey, we're in Vegas. And of course I had known that. They were having an end of the year, first of the year vacation. And she said, your dad's in the hospital and and it doesn't look good. And I said, okay, the moving truck's on the way. I'm gonna get to Virginia, then I'll check in. And she said, you are not hearing me. You need to be in the car to the airport right now, or you're not going to get to say goodbye. So I had to do that. We went out to Vegas. I met my brother. We flew out to Vegas. And two weeks later, we brought my dad home in the cargo hold of the plane instead of in first class where he belonged. Mm, And what it did was threw us into a real tailspin because we didn't know, we didn't have a succession plan. I mean, my dad was only 52 years old. We didn't have anybody that could fill his shoes. And we we had to make that up on the fly. And so unfortunately, that became me. And the the thing that was scary about it is I've always been in the room with the CEO. You know, that was part of the nature of my job in the the previous jobs that I had had. 
And I had watched and, and learned and observed and said, oh, this was done well. And I think this could have been done differently. And then you're in the chair and things look very differently from the, from the perspective of that chair. And what I really needed at that point was an operations manual, you know, a, a guidebook, a, a coloring book for that matter mm-hmm. of, you know, just the most basic skills of what is my job. The CEO is the only job in the building that doesn't have a job description. And so that's the book that I set out to write. That's great. You know, I've worked with a lot of CEOs over the years too, and it can be a really lonely job, right? Why do you think that's the case? I think it's the case. I have a mentor who shared this with me one time. He said, the CEO is the loneliest person in the company. That's the joy and the hurt of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that really summed it up nicely. Why is it? Because we have to know everything from the perspective that we occupy. And it means that you don't have a peer, you don't have a shoulder to lean on of somebody who's going through the same thing. I can't go down the hall if I'm having a bad month financially in the business and cry on the shoulder of my sales team leader who happens to be one of my good friends, because what does he do? He goes home and spruces up the resume and says, the company is going to fold. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so I can't do that inside the company. And that, that's a lonely space to exhibit. And it takes emotional maturity that you have to grow into to understand exactly that. You're not allowed to have the same emotional reactions that others are allowed to have. And you can sort of feel like, well, that's unfair to me or something of that nature. But but that's the gig that you sign up for, even if you didn't sign up for it and it was sort of foisted on you, that is still the role that you have to play. And so I thought it was really important to share that with other people because when I was going through it, I was very ashamed that I had those feelings, not understanding that they were universal, that everyone had those feelings. Mm -hmm. I spoke at a conference probably four years ago, and the speaker who followed me said, you only have one moral imperative, and that is to be the person that you needed when you were younger. And I, you know how it is when you get off stage and you're kind of not mobbed, but people come up and they want to talk. But I was listening with half an ear to what the speaker said, and I had to sit down. It hit me in the chest so hard because I wasn't doing that. I was doing good things. I was the chairman of the local homeless shelter, and I participated in the United Way fundraising and you know those kinds of things. I was trying to be a good corporate citizen. But authentically, I wasn't trying to help the tray that needed the help when I was that age. And I figured out after a long time that the way to do that was to write that job description. And thankfully, the book itself has been really well received, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I'm super grateful for the messages that I get. I got a, a message, a LinkedIn message from a CEO in Italy a month ago who said, thank you so much for giving me the rails to run my train on. And not only do I thank you, but my team thanks you right? Because I was ruining their life on a daily basis because I was doing their job and not mine. Yeah, And that's exactly what I tried to do with the book. You know, as I listened to you talk, you didn't necessarily come to your family business, the typical route that a lot of the listeners of InFactor who are entrepreneurs or or nascent entrepreneurs. So, you know, you came, you were in early stage companies and startup companies. So you certainly got that experience. But a lot of the people that listen to this are founders. And what strikes me as I'm listening to you talk is that this book, you know, sounds like a book that might be primarily for 
you know, bigger corporate CEOs. But the reality is so many entrepreneurs find themselves in a position where their company has grown to the point that they really need to change. They personally, you know, when you start a company, you've got your fingers on everything. You're, you know, you're doing everything from basically, you know, sweeping the floor if it needs to be swept to, you know, raising money and everything in between. But all of a sudden your business is growing. You've got more employees. Suddenly you've got to be more of a, more of a visionary leader, CEO, more traditional CEO. So I would imagine that a lot of CEOs go through exactly what you went through when you found yourself in this position unexpectedly. You were headed down this path of being, you know, working with these tech companies and all this, you know, you know, negotiating deals and and using a lot of your legal training. And then all of a sudden, here you are, like a lot of CEOs and you wait or a lot of business founders, you wake up and your job description no longer is the same. So that's really interesting. So for somebody who is maybe listening to this that wants to be, you know, wants to start a business or maybe has a business that's growing, you know, this book, I think, could be a lot of help. So so what are, you have three pillars in the book, I think, and culture, people, and numbers that you talk about. So could you sort of talk us through how you, how you came up, you, you went from, not you know needing to write a job description to this book that's kind of zeroed in on sort of I think it's titled a CEO only does three things. So could you tell yeah. us about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And and just to put a, a segment in real quick, we have found that the people buying the book they are senior people, you know, people who have been veterans of the C-suite for a while. But we're finding a ton of people in the situation that you're talking about. This is the most gifted book in the Inc. 5000 right now. They're buying copies and sending to each other. Nice. Because one of the guys told me, he put it like this, if you fly a plane from LA to New York, but you get the degree off by one degree, you end up in DC. Two degrees puts you in Atlanta. Three degrees puts you in Miami. Four degrees and you're out of gas over Cuba, right? And so getting it right on launch is more important to where you end up than course correcting along the way, which is very inefficient and burns up all your fuel. Mm -hmm. So I think from his comment, that made it very clear to me that this is a good use for startup CEOs who have to go that extra step of resolving themselves today. Am I doing CEO work or am I doing product manager work because I don't have a product manager yet, right? Mm -hmm. So we we see that in the actual use of the book. So I just wanted to make make that clear as well. Culture people and numbers. One of my favorite VCs, and I grew up in the venture capital business, is a guy named Fred Wilson. And Fred is like the king of first money in to companies that become household brands before any of the rest of us hear about them. So he funded Tumblr, Uber, Pinterest, and all of these you know companies before the rest of us ever had any idea that we needed to call a call, car service or you know look at a whole page full of somebody's decorating ideas. He's a real genius when it comes to spotting operational talent. He has a real talent for that. And so I saw him speak one time and it it always stuck with me. He had a company that he invested in. I don't think he shared the name of the company, but they had to replace the CEO. The CEO just didn't work out. And he was sitting with a really older, you know, sort of gray-headed, you know, board member. And he said, we've got to replace the CEO. And I don't really know what a CEO is supposed to do. How do I even write a job description for this? 
And the other guy, without missing a beat, said, it's obvious a CEO does three things. They set the overall vision and determine the way that we are going to communicate and vibe with each other, basically. They keep enough money in the bank so that they can hire the right people to accomplish the mission. Boom, 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 culture, people, numbers, just like that. And I thought, you know, that is wonderful. And that's exactly what's missing. And so that's how I got to those three things. And then, of course, I trial them for years. And so that's what we did as we built in our own businesses that we own, culture, people, numbers. And we do investing. And we only do investing in companies that check those boxes with CEOs that understand that those three things working in concert, you can't prioritize one over the other. It doesn't work like that. Those are the companies that we think really have longevity and really have a shot. That's really interesting. And, you know, I think a job like a CEO job, because of the complexity, I think most people would really, especially when they're struggling with with kind of, you mentioned, you know, having the rails to run on, most people need some kind of structure. And when they're confused or facing challenging decisions, I can see the power of having a simple mantra to go back to. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And so do I really think that CEOs in the world accomplish three things in a day and get to go home and play golf? (laughs) No, I happen to be a CEO of several companies. And I know that that's not always how it works. When I am in the zone, when the flow is happening for me, it is when I knock those three things out on a daily basis before I turn to to to-do list and before I turn to helping my team execute the vision. What do I mean by that? I mean that these three things are the eternal, right? These are things that will always be there for us to do, but get pushed out by the daily things that need to be done. Mm -hmm. And so what I do, life is a fight for territory. And what I do is claim that territory for those three things before I touch anything else during the day. I don't allow myself to open my inboxes until I have accomplished something culturally, something regarding my people, and something regarding my numbers. Even if they are infinitesimally small, I touch those things every single morning between eight and nine o'clock in the morning. Part of that is self-care, right? So one of the things I do is to take is, is taking care of my people, is taking care of Trey. So I have a little quiet time, a little podcast, maybe a little spiritual reading or something of that nature. People have really good habits around that stuff. But then secondly, I expand that out to say, what can I do for the culture? I noticed that St. Patrick's Day is coming up. I take my phone out and I order green bagels for the office on that day. Such a small little thing, hundred bucks spend for the folks in the office, a small little thing, but I'm touching the eternal every single day. And that's the real thing. And I even print out just because you and I are on video, you can see it. I have this as my work pad every single morning before I sit down. And what I'm showing there is just a, a matrix. It says Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, culture, people, numbers. And I have to fill that in before I'm allowed to sort of get into the nitty gritty of angry emails or, you know, phone calls that need to be returned. And that's what I coach CEOs to do. That's great. I really love it. You know, there is a lot of power with rituals and routines. And, you know, I'm a, I've been a runner for most of my life and I, I'm a morning runner. So I know that, you know, if I'm not, if I'm not out there early in the morning, I'm probably not going to do it because the rest of the day, and now when I was writing my dissertation and, and like you, I'm actually a book author and, you know, I'm working on a book right now for me, early morning is when I write as well. Some people write at night, but did you create a, a 
a routine or a ritual so you could get this book done on top of everything else that you're doing? I did. You know, you're, you're always a recovering law student, no matter what. <laughs> and so when I decided to write the book, I wrote a five paragraph essay. And I said, if I can write a five paragraph essay, I can turn that into a magazine article. If I can write a magazine article, I can turn it into a book. And so I went and bought four notebooks or five notebooks. And I wrote introduction on the cover, conclusion on the cover, culture people numbers on the others. And for about a year, I made handwritten notes in the book of interesting things that I had learned, people that I had met, phrases that they used, research time, you know, that sort of thing, and used it to pull my thoughts together. I thought that was a really good way to do it. And so that was my process. And then I had, after I had done all of that, I digested it all again. And then I hired someone to just call me and interview me and then just give me the transcript of what we talked about. So I did 10 or 12 hours of interviews just to get words on the screen, working through them, moving them around, that sort of thing. Then I rewrote it it feels like 15 or 20 times. And then the publisher who I absolutely love, I never would have had this book come out the way that it did without that publisher. They had their own process and their own ritual side of things as well. They really spruced up the book and made it something that I was proud to go out with. That was the emotional conversation I had with the publishers. Do not let this book go out if it isn't something that I can be proud of. And then finally, after re-edits and re-edits, the publisher liaison, the editor called and said, are you sick of reading your book yet? And I said, yes, don't send me another edit. I won't touch (laughs) it. I don't want to read it. I hate this book. And she said, good, now you're ready to publish. Ready to go. (laughs) Put it out. And then you'll you'll know this, of course. I didn't want anything. I don't want to read that book. Nothing at all. But there's this psychological phenomena that happens about a year after you publish a book which is you can read the book with clean eyes again. So it isn't me on those pages in any way. I recognize the stories, but the rest of the stuff is your brain is sort of deleted, you know, the phraseology and that sort of thing. And so I'm getting to the point where I think I might want to read the book and see what I think about it with fresh eyes. And then of course, (laughs) that's when you get into a revision or a second edition or something. uh, Exactly. Or a second book. So there's a lot of things in your background I'd really love to dig into for a few minutes for our listeners who are entrepreneurs. So you were working during the dot-com era, I think, and you were in some really exciting tech startups. So What was that like? And what did you learn from those experiences with WebMD and and some of the other companies you worked for that that you've been able to leverage in what you're doing today? Yeah, I probably aggravate my team the most with the lessons that I learned in that space. And the lesson is speed is a choice. Prior to the dot-com boom, you couldn't go public in under two years. It just wasn't possible and it wasn't a thing. You couldn't acquire a million customers for any direct-to-consumer product. It, it simply could not be done. But the leverage of technology, I think, woke that extra chakra up in the entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? To say, wait a minute, the rules, the bars on the windows, they're not real. Like we can go through those. And we're still seeing that trend. And I think that trend is even accelerating. I'm doing a deep dive study right now on SPACs and how they work and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And the People hate them. The Wall Street folks that don't get paid for SPACs hate them. And they say, oh, they're trendy and all that kind of stuff. And I say, bull, this is simply the acceleration of innovation in the financial space. And I think we see that a lot. That's one of the things that I learned. There's a good and a bad side to that. Often I choose ludicrous speed over manageable and high velocity speed. 
And my team gets aggravated by that because by the time they're ready to do one thing that I'm on to the third thing after that. And so as an executive, you have to match the pace and the cadence, right? That's part of what we have to do. So for someone like me, I have to pull way back on that. So I went from tech to insurance. There is nothing more conservative than insurance. And so it is something that's scary. If you, if you were to walk into your insurance agent's office and they were rushing and telling you about 25 years in the future or what products would look like, that, that's a mismatch of cadence. Mm-hmm. And so speed is a choice. And that's something that we have to embrace and then manage in, in our businesses. Yeah, that's really great advice. And you brought up a lot of things. You were talking about specs and you were t- and from the investment community. You know, it's interesting that that just came up in a conversation that I had with two or three of my st- graduate students who are also studying finance and looking at what's happening in the IPO world and in the investment community. And we were talking about the fact that 2020 had been an incredible year for the investment world, that costs were down for investors and, yeah. and especially in the tech community. Do you have any thoughts on, on how this whole pandemic has affected, you know, I mean, we're users of technology now, I think in a way that a year ago, we never would have imagined could have happened in 12 months. Yeah, you know, I think we reached a tipping point where we had the tools, but weren't willing to trust them enough. And when we had nothing else to fall back on, we, we fell mm-hmm. back on that. Zoom is a great example. And you see the, the usage of the company, how beautifully they've managed to get through it as well yeah, uh, yeah. is a real testament to management that I don't see being written about in the financial press. And I think should be. You've seen all kinds of companies grow up. We just invested in a company based in Tampa that is doing things that Zoom should be doing, but Zoom wasn't designed to do. So managing sort of the user experience in hybrid events where you're live and on camera, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. There's a company in Germany that's raised, I think, like $400 million in the past year doing something similar to that. So I'm super intrigued by, you know, what technologies we didn't know we couldn't live without that we're actively looking for now. I think that's really interesting. Other mega trends that sort of come from that are the whole work from home Space. So what does that look like? We, you and I spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, the fact that we're all having different kinds of pandemics. I hired an analyst, a young lady had just graduated Columbia, one of the really prestigious consulting firms had hired her. And then when it came time for her to start, she and her entire cohort were told we don't have jobs for you. And they said, well, can we get a severance package? And they said, we can't give you a severance if you never started work. And they were just marooned in New York City, no jobs, not an inexpensive place to not have a job, and beset with the problems of being sort of physically locked down. She got the vaccine because she said, I haven't left my building in seven weeks. And I want the vaccine so that I can be safe going out. Vastly different. So then what does work from home become for her? Her lease is up in April. She's moving to somewhere where it's nice to be able to walk outside with good internet and, you know, that she can still work a job and that sort of thing. And where is that happens to be for her, Texas, right? And I think for half the country, it seems to be Texas. And And the other half's coming here to Florida. That's right, (laughs) which we welcome. We're thrilled about that. We're thrilled about it. With that though, comes vastly different demographics, vastly different inclusivity requirements, vastly different political viewpoints. 
And these are mega trends that we're going to be dealing with and rationalizing for the next 30 years. Yeah. 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 It's really, fa- you know, in the conversation I was having with my students, we were talking about the entrepreneurial ecosystems and the fact that 2020 had been such an incredible year, you know, for the Florida investment community, and I think for some others as well. But we were also talking about the whole migration. And there was an interesting article by Richard Florida, as I'm sure you, the creative class, he's mm-hmm. done a lot of work on that. And he was talking about some cities, you know, the population they're losing. He was kind of calling them losers and winners. Mm-hmm. They're winners and losers from this pandemic. I think that's probably true in terms of different kinds of businesses as well, that there have been some that have really, you know, I'm on the board of Marine Max, which is the world's largest retailer for luxury yachts. And it's been an incredible year. You know, because boating is something that was safe during the pandemic. So it just, it's fascinating to me that a year ago we were sitting here faced with being locked down right about this time, actually. And none of us knew what was going to happen. And I agree with you. You mentioned earlier that it's been interesting to see what people have done with their time. And, and, and it's true, I think, with businesses as well. What are some of the other trends that you think? You mentioned remote work, and we talked about the growth of technology. Do you see any other trends coming out of this that entrepreneurs in particular might want to be paying attention to? I do. I have a particular obsession right now with the concept of dropshipping. So I think 2021 is the year of the dropshipping entrepreneur. I have an active investment in a company that's doing exactly that right now. So full disclaimer, I believe in this well enough to put multiple six figures into a company that's solving this problem. Kevin Harrington, who you and I both know together, is also an investor in that company. And I, and I say that to say that, that people who really get deep and think about these things see this. And so here's what I think. I think that if you have been laid off because of COVID, you've sat at home with a level of stress that other business owners may not have. And you've probably said to yourself, I don't ever want to be in that position again where somebody can dispense with my services, like my analyst, for example. And what if I could go to a website, build it, find some items that I think are are useful and valuable and people will pay for if if I can get those items in front of people, but I don't own a warehouse, nor do I want to get into that side of the business. If I can just punch a button and let someone receive what they buy from me and make a little bit of money on that, right? I don't have to make 600 grand a year. If I could make 50 grand a year and I was making 50, 60,000 at my previous employer who can let me go at a drop of a hat, I can always go back to that work. I can always work the two jobs together. But I think entrepreneurs, those of us who never had the shot to be an entrepreneur before, when we're forcibly told to stay home and don't have a job, we're going to start looking for things. And I think there's a lot of people that are going to wake up to that. And I think dropshipping is a huge work from home trend in the future. And the VCs that I talk to believe that as well. Mm-hmm. How do we make work from home easier, lots less barriers, cheaper, more profitable for companies? All of those kinds of things are mega trends that are coming in. And, and I'm seeing, I mean, I've probably seen a thousand business plans and pitch decks a year for the past 22 or 23 years. I'm seeing more high quality actual baked businesses now than I ever saw even in the heyday of internet 1.0 and 2.0. I'm seeing much better companies come out today, much better founding teams. That's interesting. What do you think is attributing to that? 
a couple of things. One, it used to require a couple of million bucks to start up a technology company because you had to buy these things called servers, mm-hmm. right? Nobody yes. does that anymore. Nobody owns their own servers anymore on the startup level. You know, What do we do instead? We pay $7 a month to Amazon AWS to use their server farms and all of that sort of thing. Easy to stand up, very simple, very cheap to do. So that's one of the things. So that's interesting to me. Also, if you haven't noticed, we're paddleboarding around in a pool of capital. So the US and the entire world's response to the pandemic was to say, this is the Great Depression, right? If we don't do something very different, this is the Great Depression. What did we learn from the Great Depression is we caused it by completely tightening all of the capital inflows, the M1 and M2 money supply. So this time we decided for better or worse 30 years from now, but for better right now, we decided to flood the world with cheap capital. I just refinanced my house at 2.13% percent and I missed 1.97% because I was a day late. That's unbelievable. <laughs> it is. When inflation yeah. is 3% today on the government publications and is much higher in the future because yeah. of yeah. the you know influx capital, I'm buying money at cheaper than they can print it, which is unbelievable. The other thing that that means is that there's a competition for those dollars. Those dollars don't have enough things to buy. I don't know if you saw the report that 47% of millennials receiving the stimulus check intend to invest it, and they don't intend to invest it in the public markets. They intend to invest in alternative investments, Bitcoin, all of the crypto stuff, art, all these other kinds of alternative investments that have now been securitized. They didn't exist 15 years ago. Secondly, the public listings there are fewer public companies now than there were 15 years ago. It is so. It has been a real desert of going public in the past 12 years. So we haven't replenished the market with companies that should be investable. And so that's why you see, I think, so much bottleneck right now with companies saying, hey, we can finally go public. There's a demand for what we have. But the traditional system isn't, the pipe isn't big enough. So we just built a different pipe and we called it SPACs. Mm -hmm. And there's probably three or four innovations coming as well. It's all that competition for dollars. That's the trending thing right now. Real estate as well. You can't buy a house anywhere in the country right now. Nowhere at all. I'm I'm in conversations with real estate developers and investors all over the country. I had a conversation this morning with somebody in Grand Forks. Where is that? Utah, I think it is. Yeah, Utah. And she said, I have bought every single family home that I could personally purchase in the past three months, and I can't find another one right now. My own home market, exactly the same thing. Austin, Texas, seven offers for every home coming on the market right now. Pocket listings left and right. So all of those dollars are trying to find any asset they can find. And now we're inventing new assets. NFTs have just come on the scene in the past two or three weeks. I read the article in The Hustle the other day. Some guy put $50,000 into an NFT, which I frankly cannot fully explain to you. And it's now worth $20 million. Why? Not because that asset class is some new asset class that's really beautiful and wonderful. It's because the competition for dollars, when we have injected $6 trillion into the US economy and another $6 trillion in the world economy, those dollars have to find a home. Yeah. It's really an exciting time. What does all this mean for the entrepreneur, the nascent entrepreneur, somebody who's got an idea and they want to get started? It is the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur, right? It is the cheapest time for you to to leap out and start a company. Your idea does not have to be fully baked. 
the enemy of the perfect is always, or an enemy of the good is always the perfect, perfect, right? It doesn't have to be perfect today because the ramp to perfect is so fast. Capital is at an all-time oversupply. We will see the ramifications of bad companies getting funded. And I see a little bit of that going on from time to time now. You always have that as a, as a factor of just people making the wrong bet. So you'll see a little bit of fallout from that this time. But, but what it means is venture capital is supposed to be risk-based capital. It's supposed to be, you don't have the answer. Here's the money to give you the runway to go figure it out. And I think that that's going to grow some really great companies. It used to be that you, you had to take your time off of work and you couldn't work on a startup or you had to do it in the basement at night and that sort of thing. But now you know the stock market's up and you can get all these other kinds of sources of income and you can do gig work and that kind of thing. And, and there are really great startups coming through. I shared with you that I had spoken to the Entrepreneurial Center at University of Georgia mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And I told those kids, please, for the love of God, don't go get corporate jobs right out of school. Give yourself the shot for six to 12 months. Your parents are going to hate me for saying that, but please do exactly that. I sponsored a cohort at the Atlanta Tech Village of 30, what do they call them? Disadvantaged founders. So people of color, people who don't have English as a first language. We had 30 of those folks coming in and trying to figure out what businesses should be started and that sort of thing. And it's the greatest time to be an entrepreneur right now. All of the hurdles, the hurdles are there but they're speed bumps. They're not waist high hurdles like they used to be. Mm-hmm. Can't speak for the future. It may be very different in the future, but right now for another two, my estimation is two to three years. I think things change late 2022, but for right now, that's where they stand. Yeah. It's what's that saying? Make hay while the sun shines, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jump in there and yeah. take advantage of it. And you know, a lot of our students, I agree with you that if they've got something they're passionate about and they've They've done the research and the due diligence, you know, usually coming out of school, they don't have much to lose. So it's a good time to take the risks associated with startup, you know, so. Very much the case. The other thing that I would, would point out is you have so many new things being invented right now that you have the opportunity as a student to become a world expert in something that nobody knows anything about. One of the funds that I advise is looking at a SPAC and we tried to hire somebody to teach us about SPACs. We couldn't find anybody. Nobody knew. We had to wait for 10 or 12 of them to get out there and get done before we could go find an expert to educate us Mm -hmm, in that. mm -hmm. We paid that expert $1,500 an hour for two solid days to give us the basics. Couldn't find it anywhere else. The expert was 28 years old. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things I've observed about innovators and entrepreneurs is that they often have two kinds of education. They have formal education, but they often are self-educated in what may be a very different area. And that that kind of self-education can be so powerful because it gives you that unique and competitive difference from everybody else that graduated with you at the same time. Absolutely the case. And look how easy it is to educate yourself today based on what it used to be. There was a movie on television the other night. You'll remember this war games from back in the mid eighties. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? It was Matthew Broderick's first movie. And there was a montage where he was doing research and he was in the library and he was looking through the card catalog and he found one book to read and that sort of thing. And it just struck me by how different it was that he could sit down in front of Google today and spend eight hours and intake 10 to 15 times 
the information and better quality information Mm -hmm. than what he was able to receive at that point, because whatever book he pulled off the shelf had been sitting there for 10 or 15 years, most likely. Right Now we have so many, it's omni-channel now. I don't know, Dr. White, if you're on Clubhouse yet, but Clubhouse is this Just got absolutely, <laughs> did you? Good. Well, I'll, I'll follow you when I see you on there for sure. I can walk into any room, participate in a discussion, oftentimes with one of the world experts. So Kevin Harrington, I'll mention his name again. You and I are, are friends with Kevin and I can go into Kevin's room and ask Kevin face-to-face almost in a virtual setting Kevin, what makes a good and sellable product? And he will just hold forth for an hour or two hours. I don't get the access, proximity access like that any other way. It's absolutely amazing that that's available. MIT has every single class that they teach on YouTube. The sole difference after going through all of those classes is you don't get a piece of paper that says that you're an MIT graduate. I think even that will be changing in the future. Coursera went public yesterday. I think they filed yesterday. They either went public yesterday. They have the estimation of a lifetime of knowledge downloaded in a single day, every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Education has been totally disrupted and it's been coming for a while, but I think that the whole pandemic really changed things for us and, and accelerated it a lot. I could sit and talk about this all day, but I know you've got other things to do as a CEO and book author and many other hats that you wear. I just wanted to ask you a couple of couple more questions about that maybe some of our student listeners might be interested in. I understand that you studied at Oxford. Would you recommend to a student that study abroad? Is that yeah. worthwhile? And did that impact your career in any way? I don't know that you can study abroad right now, but let's assume that when you can again, (laughs) we actually have a lot of international students at UT, but a lot of our students like to travel too. And hopefully they'll be able to do that again. I hope so. Yeah, I do. Because the world is, was so open before and you could find, this is interesting. I had a friend the other day and he asked, he's, he's that friend of mine that asked me the off the wall question that sends me into a tailspin. He asked me the other day, what version of yourself are you most familiar with? And for me, the answer is the 20-year-old version of myself, because I went from the States to the UK. The UK is a vastly different culture that shares a language, but the culture is very, very different. I was the most alone I have ever been in my life, even though I could be in a crowd of people at that point. And so all of the conversation happened right up here. So the guy that I know the best is that 20-year-old guy. I know his problems. I know his mental limitations. I know his self-image very, very well, because I spent the most time with him one-on-one like that. And it's the old, you know, go up on the top of the mountain and don't come down until you know yourself. That's what it did for me. I don't think everybody has that same experience overseas. We do believe in it as a family a lot, as a matter of fact. And so the way that we have our estate plans set up is that the trustees, the only thing that the trustees of our trust that we create for our children are mandated to provide if asked is a year study abroad. It was so transformational for me. My wife did it on a much muted scale. She only did about a month overseas. I did 16 months until my dad said, I'm cutting off the credit card if you don't come home, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I didn't use it often, but that was scary enough for me to finally just come home. So it's a tremendously long answer to a question that if you have the opportunity, you absolutely should do that. Continental education systems are very different. Oxford specifically is the tutorial-based system. 
So you don't really go to class as much as you meet one-on-one or two to three-on-one with a tutor who's an expert in the space and you get really deep into what you decided to learn. So that's a very different thing. And it's a very good thing, I think, in that junior year to really get focused on what you want to learn. And then, you know, they have a gap year that we really don't have. They Mm -hmm. are fully expected to work and sort of get into the world before they start university. And we can't wait to kick an 18-year-old out of the house and get them into college. And so that's that's different. It brings a different maturity and a different level of commitment to education as well. Yeah, yeah. I and my children had experiences that were transformative, I think, as well. So I totally support that. And I, I think you're right. It can be, a lot of it is about getting to know yourself by throwing yourself into a, an environment that's different. As we close here, Trey, if there was one piece of advice that you could leave with our listeners, we've talked about so many great things today from you know technology and entrepreneurship and CEO strategies and travel abroad. What would that one piece of advice be? I know that's going to be hard maybe to distill that down, but you've, you've probably got something. Yeah, I'll give you this just because it's something that's really powerfully on my mind recently. And I, I write about this in the conclusion section of the book. I get asked a lot, okay, this is what it takes to be a good CEO, culture, people, numbers. What does it take to be a great CEO? And I do actually have a a story in the book that I tell that that answer that question. In my opinion, in observation and listening to others who have come into contact with great CEOs, and I want to put a parenthesis around that and say leaders and formative influences, and I'll tell you why in a second. A great CEO has the ability to do two things simultaneously. Number one is to precept gifts in others. So precept is the seeing of a gift before someone can see it in themselves. So it's a little play on perception. And second, they have the ability to evoke those gifts from the person. That comes from the Latin ex vocata, call from within. So I'm going to see a gift in you. That's not where the job ends. I'm going to call it forth so that you see it in yourself. And when Trey was in the sixth grade, I had Madeline Brownlee was the head of school and she taught algebra for sixth graders, pre-algebra, I guess it was. And Ms. Brownlee was 840 years old when I first met her. <laughs> she had a modified beehive. You can see it in your, in your mind's eye. She wore polyester pantsuits that you could shoot bullets at and they wouldn't make a dent in them. And she always had some little pin or brooch of an animal, a butterfly, an insect or something on. This was the, her put together thing. And she was tough. She was really tough. (laughs) And she said to me one day, "Uh, Mr. Taylor, good news. You get to be the homework monitor, which is really a glamorous thing to make a junior high student, you know. And there came a time when I had to mark people, yay or nay, they had done their homework. And I did not do my homework that week. And I marked it, no, that I hadn't done it. And she looked at it and she said, you marked yourself that you didn't do this homework. And I said, yes, ma'am, I didn't do it. And she said, that's true character. And I knew you had that. And now you know you had that. And again, it was almost one of those situations that I I almost was in tears because she had held a mirror up to my soul that I didn't know there was anything there. Three weeks later, we were walking down the hall and she pointed to the wall where they had sign up for student council elections. And she said, why isn't your name on that wall? I said, because I wouldn't do that. That's not who I think I can be. And she said, when I turn around, your name better be on that wall. And I spent a career in the student council. I do politics even to this day. Everything that Ms. Brownlee saw in me was there, and I couldn't see it in myself. And great leaders, great friends, great CEOs, 
do that for us. And when she passed away, I was in Atlanta and heard about it that morning by text and got into my car and drove to her funeral because I would not have missed that for the world. The chairman of my board of directors worked with Jack Welch at GE. They were peers. They were hired in the exact same cohort, went to GE University together and all of that sort of thing. He was in my office the day that Jack Welch died. And he's a 78-year-old man. And he put his head in his hands and cried real tears Mm -hmm. because Jack Welch, who he had not seen in 40 years, precepted and evoked talents from him that stayed with him for the rest of his life and made him a CEO of a very large company on his own. And here's the thing. That's what I want to leave everybody with. We can do this today. You don't have to read my book, although you should, and it's available on Amazon. You can start this today. There is somebody who you will come across today that you'll notice a gift in. Perhaps the server is enthusiastic and pleasant to be around. Perhaps the person taking tolls on the toll road is doing so very efficiently in getting people through. You know, Perhaps your executive assistant is someone who never lets anything get her down and she gets right back up. It doesn't matter who you come across. But have you ever told them what you think they're very, very good at and how you appreciate them being good at it? When you do, you touch the interior life of that person in a way that no one else does on a daily basis. And for whatever else you leave behind in the world, those are things worth leaving behind. And I exhort people, if I can use that term, to use that power that we all have inside of us today. It's not easy because it feels a little uncomfortable and it feels a little woo-woo and squishy, but it is powerful when you do it. You have to do it in an agreement of authenticity. You can't make it up. You can't BS your way through it. It has to be real because people know and they feel mocked if you, if you, if you mm-hmm. try to call something that isn't real. But it's something that we all should do. What a world to live in. If we walk down the street and people said, Trey, you're a great author or you're a great driver or whatever it happens to be, it doesn't matter. What a world to live in. And I'm signing up for that world. And I hope your listeners will as well. Trey, I love it. I was just thinking that very thing. That's what we need more of that today, I think. And what what a beautiful world it would be if we all lived by that. So thank you for that. And before we end, where can our listeners find out more about you, find your book and follow you perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So my personal website is www.trey-taylor.com. My consulting business is trinity-blue.com. The book is an Amazon bestseller in multiple categories. So you can find the book there. A CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite. And I have a new venture, which is a newsletter that I publish two, three, four times a week of interesting things, very much like we've talked about today. You can sign up for that. It's a free newsletter. You can sign up for that at www.plantyourflag.live. Sorry about that. That's okay. Thank you, Trey. This has been phenomenal. Appreciate your time and all the great words of wisdom. And I hope everybody will buy your book and follow what you're doing. It's impactful. Well, thanks so much for what you do. I know that I have many friends that have listened to the podcast and, and always find great value there and what you do in the education system, of course, to prepare entrepreneurs for the future. So much appreciation for that. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you, Trey. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor. Factor.